So today, because of that, we are wrapping up our peculiar series, uh, a series of messages that looks at how God's people are called to be different, a different kind of community, that we're called to be holy as he is holy, to be in the world, but not of the world. And over these last few months, we've looked at several areas of distinction. And my wife really wanted me to do this because she's been trying to get them down. So we're gonna put all those titles up here. So a community of loving relationships in a culture of expressive individualism. We're called to be a community who follows Jesus amidst a culture of ideological idolatry. We're called to be a community that is sent with the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that is lost in itself. And we are called to holiness in a culture where anything goes. We're also called to be a community of peace in a society of outrage and a community that abides in Christ where we are fruitful in a culture of optimization where everything is about productivity. And we're called to be a community of truth and grace in a culture of prideful self. And that was a message about the gay pride movement. And uh, there's been lots of buzz about that message, hmm, imagine. And then finally, or not finally, a community of forgiveness in a world of bitterness. And then finally last week, a community of contribution in a society of workism. Now, there's so many other, there's so many other distinctions that God has put in his people. And I, I've just picked out several that have kind of been speaking to me. And I believe that we have a job in this day and age, in this culture to be distinct, not condemning, but different. Not putting people down, not being harsh and difficult, but loving in such a way that it gets people's attention. Jesus said, and they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Karl Barth, uh, Barth actually describes the church's distinction really well. He says, the church exists to set up in the world a new sign, which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way which is full of promise. The church exists as a contrast that is full of promise for those who would believe, for those who are coming to belief. And yet, we could probably make a strong arg argument that the modern church is more similar to the world than dissimilar. That we're not really influencing culture that much. We're probably compromising with it. That our differences are rare. That our holiness, oftentimes indistinguishable. And it reminds me of what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. How has today's church lost its flavor? How have we lost our taste? 
How are we no longer salty? (laughs) I know some salty people. It's not the kind of saltiness I'm talking about. How have we lost our usefulness? What have we been holding on to that will soon be trampled underfoot? What are we doing that needs to be just thrown out altogether? Listen, the church is at a crossroads in the Western world and in America. And much of what has been done up to this point is no longer working. And it has been consumer driven, an attractional model, and Jesus never called a church to that. He called us to pick up our cross, to deny ourselves and to follow him. We are called to be disciples, not gatherers. We're called to be ministers, not pew sitters. We are called to be involved and participate with his work, not just amused by it or observing of it. He has called us into a life of discipleship. Listen to the indictment God makes of his people through the prophet Jeremiah. My Bible reading plan came up on Jeremiah this last week. And it's one of my favorite Old Testament books. And I did a series of messages on the life of Jeremiah. He is such an interesting figure, character, prophet of God. And this is what he said by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 3, 6. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought after she was done all this, she will return to me, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And she saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. God just doesn't mince words, does he? He's pretty blunt. The kingdom had been divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, 10 tribes, and the southern kingdom of Judah, just two tribes. And, and Israel had long left the Lord and he had, he had turned them over to their own devices and he had continued to work with Judah, hoping that they would maintain an integrity, a peculiarity as God's people in the world. And yet they saw the example of Israel and then followed in their path. Faithless Israel played the whore and treacherous Judah followed suit. Idolatry is is something we see repeated over and over and over again in the Bible. But idolatry is so much more than carved images. I've used this quote before from Augustine. He says, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used and using anything that is meant to be worshiped. And so using God to get what we want is just as idolatrous if we had a golden calf and we all bowed down in front of it. In fact, it can be even more powerful because it's disguised as something that's good. We use God to achieve success or power or equity or comfort. It is just as idolatrous as anything spelled out in the Old Testament. And Jesus not only addresses this in the Old Testament, because you're like, well, we're in the New Covenant, right? We're good. But actually, he calls out New Testament churches just like he did the people of the Old Testament. 
Like in Revelation 2, 4, when he said to the church in Ephesus, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. In the church in Sardis, he said, you have the reputation of being alive, but you were dead. Again, Jesus is blunt. And to the church in Laodicea, he says, I know your works. You were neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's what he says here. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Those are harsh words, but they show the true nature of people's hearts. There's recurring evidence that God's people drift. They stray. And we're prone to that also. The American church is certainly prone to that. God's people throughout the ages have been prone to forget what God has done and to start using God rather than serving God. God's people drift. And this is on both sides of the cross. Ask Ananias and Sapphira. We abandon our first love. We think we're alive, but we're really dead. We feel successful, but truly we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. And when you add to it the lurid condition of today's Western church, with all its hypocrisy and scandal and greed and division and powerlessness, it's pretty clear that as a whole, or even as a part, even as our church, we might need to repent. He's calling us to return, to come home, to be his peculiar people, to not be so conditioned and so similar to the world that they don't know the difference between them and us. We are called to be his covenant people, full of hope and grace, but also truth that stands for what God stands for. We are called to be the church. That's what this message has all been about, to be different, peculiar, not in a judgment way, but in a way that might attract people to the truth that Jesus loves them and has a call for them as well. You know, when you read the Bible, you, there's a lot of metaphors for the church in the Bible. And there's too many to really get into. You, like, for example, we're called the body of Christ, that the church is called that. And that's where Jesus is the head and each of us has a part in that body. We are a part of the body of Christ. And we're also called the family of God, where he is the father. And we are his children. We're his sons and daughters, not orphans. We're adopted into the family. What a beautiful picture. That's why I always love to say we are a spiritual family. Not an organization, but organically we are family. He also calls us the temple of God. And, and this is profound because in the Old Testament, the temple was where the presence of God dwelt. There's a really sad story where Ichabod is involved, a name of an Ichabod, and the presence has left. That's what that means. The presence of God left the building. 
But we are called to be the temple of God where not only are we being living stones work together, but we're on the foundation of Jesus and he is the cornerstone and the presence, the spirit of God abides in us. What a beautiful picture. That's what the church is to be. But maybe the most profound metaphor for the body of Christ, for the church, is that of bride, of bride. Frank Viola says, in Genesis 1 and 2, the Bible opens up with a woman and a man. In Revelation 21 and 22, that's the beginning and the end, by the way, the Bible closes with a woman and a man. The Bible opens with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. It opens with marriage and it ends with marriage. Your Bible is essentially a love story. Listen to how God describes this desire he has for his bride. Ezekiel 16, I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. I feel like this is a PG-13 at least rated movie. You go to Song of Solomon, it becomes R-rated. Hear the language God uses to describe his people. It's language of redemption and adornment and beauty and love and desire for his people. But despite all of this, God's people repeatedly fail to reciprocate in love. He's all about his bride while she has a wondering eye and a divided heart. <clears throat> I think probably the prophetic ministry of Hosea is the most vivid embodiment of this relationship between God as husband and his people as bride. And, and honestly, it's, it's a weird dynamic as I've described between God and his people. And this calling that God makes of Hosea has got to be in my top five off the wall commands of God. I've got a few. Like, like when Isaiah was called to walk around naked for three years uh, as an illustration of what God was going to do against Egypt and Ethiopia. And he says to his prophet, <laughs> walk around with buttocks bared. I think Isaiah probably felt like he needed a sabbatical about that time. That's definitely up at the top, but listen to what God asked of Hosea because it's just about as crazy. Hosea 1-2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, can you imagine how this conversation went down? <laughs> Hosea, I know the plans I have for you. Yeah, 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 God, I know I, plans to prosper me and to give me a future and a hope. Not so fast, Hosea. Actually, <laughs> I want you to go marry a prostitute 
and be subjected to heartbreak and to be ridiculed by all your people. What? (laughs) Is that you, God, or is that something I ate? Uh, Surely that's not you. No, seriously. It didn't stop there because then God gave him kids with this, this woman, this prostitute named Gomer. And he named these kids at the instruction of God, the most peculiar names. No mercy was his girl's name and not my people was his boy's name. Now, I love all you parents out there and when you bring your little babies up here and we dedicate them in front of the church, it's always fun to hear the names, right? You know, all the fun little names, but to my knowledge, none of you have picked these names. This is our sweet little girl, No Mercy. We want to dedicate her to the Lord today. This is the apple of our eye, not my people. Isn't he adorable? Why was God requiring all of this of Hosea? Because God's people had repeatedly cheated on God and Hosea's life was going to illustrate it. He was going to not just preach a message, he was going to live it. I'm I'm grateful God doesn't make me do that. Never mind. (laughs) To make matters worse, Hosea's wife, Gomer, at some point she returned to her former business. She abandoned him and went back to what she was doing before. And here's what God said to Hosea in chapter three, verse one. And the Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they have turned to other gods. Can you see how the center of gravity for this story is the love of God? It is his mercy and grace and compassion that no matter how faithless Israel becomes, God can't bear to give her up. He still pursues her. And that's why in chapter 11 of Hosea, he says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. And I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. Do you hear the gracious heart of God for his people because of his hesed love, his loving kindness, his faithful, covenantal, sacrificial, loyal love, God redeems those who were lost. And he is still here to do the same thing with any of us, any of you that find yourself wayward and strained and even cheating on him in some form or fashion. And so just as they were called to repent, so are we as his people. And if there was ever a time in the American church that repentance is needed, it is today. And I'm not pointing fingers at everybody else. I recognize that I myself need to repent of my pride, of my anger, of my haughtiness, 
of my self-worth. There's a whole list. I'm trying to just keep it short. You probably need to repent too. And so we should repent quickly. We should come boldly to the throne of grace and we should admit to our sin and our unfaithfulness and our waywardness and our whoredom. We should return to our first love and we should let him revive us and make what happens in us as the church of Jesus Christ, make what happens there, here, stronger than what happens out there. Let me close with this story. I've been really impacted by a book by John Tyson entitled Beautiful Resistance. In the book, he writes a lot about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You may be familiar with him. He's one of the most influential Christian leaders of the 20th century. And he was a significant figure in the resistance against Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime. In 1935, after Hitler had come to power, there was a group that resisted the lure that the National Church of Germany, the Lutheran Church, how it had been compelled by the Nazis, had been brought in and endorsed what Hitler was doing. But there was a group of leaders called the Confessing Church that withstood that and, and did not endorse any of that. And they resisted what that was all about, saying the church should not be should not be a tool of the state. And so in 1935, Bonhoeffer started an underground seminary in a rural town of Finkenwald, which is now just over the line into Poland. At the time, it was in German territory. And he started this seminary with a small hand group, handful of seminarians. And it was laid out that this would be a radical vision to live in community, a community of practice where they would be committed wholeheartedly to the teachings of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount and their mount, and that their life would be full of a rhythm of scripture and prayer and confession and sacred rhythms of life, including work. And while they were studying the word, they were building the seminary buildings at the same time. And this was about life together. In fact, it was so significant that Bonhoeffer wrote two books that you may be familiar with. The first was Life Together, and the second was The Cost of Discipleship. Bonhoeffer was a radical. But not everyone agreed with Bonhoeffer's vision. In fact, one of his friends who had heard a lecture by him, because Bonhoeffer was brilliant, and everyone thought he was an up-and-coming star in the church, a true theologian. This young friend, a historian named Wilhelm Neisel, grew concerned that Bonhoeffer had kind of gone off the edge. He'd gone into the deep, and he was pushing a hyper-spiritualism, and he just needed to calm down a little bit. And so Neisel left Berlin and traveled to Finkenwald to talk some sense into his friend. Now, after a lot of conversation, Bonhoeffer just finally took him and said, come with me. And they went and got into a rowboat. He was, he was physically fit and he would row this river and he took Nizel and they went across the river and off into the shore and up this hillside. And as they were standing on the hillside, he could see his seminary, Finkenwald, just right down the hill. But on the other side of the hill 
was a massive military base that the Nazis were amassing weapons and planes and armaments and soldiers scurrying around like a band of, 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 of warriors, like, like a bunch of ants. And Bonhoeffer stood there and he emphatically said to his friend, the church must be more committed to Christ than the Nazis are to the evil they are devising. And he stood there and he pointed at his seminary, the little podunk seminary with just a handful of students. And he said, this must be stronger than that. John Tyson writes in his book, on the side of a river overlooking the massing Nazi troops, he stood in the shadow of eternity, a man of conviction, a man of contrast. What he was doing in Finkenwald had to be stronger than what Hitler was doing with his army. Discipleship must be stronger than cultural formation. Loyalty must be stronger than compromise. This must be stronger than that. To some, Bonhoeffer was foolish. His seminary was tiny and his season was short. The Gestapo shut it down two years later and arrested more than two dozen of his former students and later arrested Bonhoeffer and himself after being arrested was executed just weeks before the end of the war. The only thing that's left of Finkenwald is this memorial stone. That's all that remains physically. But like so many other times when the gates of hell have tried to prevail against the church, the redeemed people of God and the bride that is being perfected, that is coming back to him in boldness and redemption and holiness, historically, it's the one who wins. For Hitler is dead and gone. And the Third Reich has been ashamed and the church of Germany has finally repented. And God's kingdom, the only kingdom that matters, the one that rests upon the shoulders of Jesus himself, the kingdom whose government and peace there will be no end, that is the kingdom that remains. Bonhoeffer's vision of committed discipleship, of sound doctrine, of life together, it is more significant in our dealings today than you could ever imagine, unless you've read the books and realized it. Bonhoeffer, what he gave his life for, it was stronger than that. And what we give our lives to, it has to be stronger than all of that. As the church of Jesus Christ, my challenge to us, as this part of the church, is are we willing to do the same kind of work that Bonhoeffer was? It may not look like it amounts to anything. It may fade and the only thing left may be a rock in the ground. But the spirit of God is moving on and his kingdom is expanding all over the place. And I wanna be a part of something that is stronger than all of this that's around us. We must be his church that lives in that strength. And I pray that in the season, the days, the months, the years ahead, whatever the Lord will give us, we'll stop going towards our comfort places and we will go towards what he has called us into, that we would be stronger than all of that. Amen.
My wife is going to come, and we're going to pray. I was going to just drop the mic and walk out the side door, but... So off. Not because I think I'm great, but because I've given you the best that I know to give. I've given you what my heart is and what our elders' hearts are for what this church and this community needs to be. And I pray that each of us will take seriously the call that God has upon us, individually, as families, as small groups, but also as a church. Share. You did a very good job. I'm going to try to be succinct, but I got really exercised from the beginning today. Um, Patrick, thank you so much for sharing out of 2 Corinthians 5 that phrase that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Mm-hmm. What Chris is talking about, that this has to be stronger than that, that isn't about us. That isn't about how much we believe it. It's not about us being amazing. It is a spiritual truth that goes over and above every fact. And we don't make that true. God makes that true. That's right. And so I want to challenge us today to remember that faith isn't acting like something is so when it really isn't. Faith is acting like it is so, whether you see it or not. We want a kind of faith that subdues all of our facts and feelings to the truth. That's true. There's only one truth. There's a lot of experiences and perceptions and beliefs, but there's one truth. And I, I think that what God is asking us to do is to be sure first that we are right aligned with him about what that is so that when we live, the choices that we make, how we think about things and what we do about them comes from the truth and not from the facts. That's good. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge that you are the greatest reality. That your truth is eternal because it is who you are. Mm -hmm. And it is not circumstantial. And it is not about us and what we do. I pray, God, that you would minister faith to our hearts that our eyes would be opened like Elisha's to see the chariots that surround. Mm -hmm. Not what can be seen with the eye, the natural eye, but what can only be seen and understood by the Spirit. She would open her eyes, God. Thank you for exercising us over these last months about what it means to be your people the characteristics that should describe and define us. But ultimately, we can't get from where we are to that 
without understanding that your truth subdues everything. That's right. We bow before you today because you are Father and King and Lord. Thank you, Lord. And we ask you to search us and try us and know us and lead us in the way everlasting. Yes, Lord. So that your truth would live in us and it would color all of our thoughts, our feelings, our motives, our actions. Yes, God. That we would live to your glory and we would be faithful witnesses to the bigness of you. Yes, Jesus. You know, I just feel led that as we're in this place of prayer, that I want the Lord to help us. I want the Lord to help me. I want him to help me in these things we've been hearing, to not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. To actually take what he's been speaking, how he's been moving, and to step out of the boat in faith, believing that God is gonna meet us there. We're gonna walk with him. If you're in that place this morning and would like to just stand with us, would you just stand where you are as we pray? Just stand where you are. Thank you, Jesus. Here we are, Lord. Your people. The ones you've had to wash and redeem and then even come after when we ran away. The ones that you died for on the cross, the ones who've been been gifted forgiveness and new life in you. Here we are, your bride. And we confess we're kind of muddy and we're a mess. And we're not the beauty that you deserve, that you desire. But we know that as we continually submit ourselves to you, that what you do in us makes us beautiful. And how you adorn us with the finery of linen, garments that are beautiful, how you wash and cleanse us, how you put a crown upon our head. It's not because we deserved it, but it's because you will have for yourself a bride, spotless and without blemish and without wrinkle. And so Lord, we submit ourselves to you and ask, have your way with us. Do in us, God, what only you can do to make for yourself a people that truly it could be said of us and the church universal, what they have is stronger than all of that because I am their God and I have redeemed them and I have called them out of darkness and brought them into light and I will have them for myself. And Lord, may we be those that tell the good news to everyone we meet because who wouldn't want to be in on that? Come join us 
as the Lord redeems and purifies and sanctifies us and makes us holy in his sight. Lord, may that be the demarcation, the characteristic of our church community here in Gwinnett County. We thank you, God. Do it in us, please. In Jesus' name.